0: the Power of Sports podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Miller, and I'm excited to welcome you all to a new season of the show. I've got some new show ideas for this year, and I'm looking forward to welcoming some great guests in the new year. If you've been wondering why new episodes of the show aren't appearing in your feed as often as they once did, it's because I've begun work as a professional coach, helping people change careers, strike a better work-life balance, and fight imposter syndrome. One of the things I love about sports is how they help so many people grow. So I began training with the Coactive Training Institute, in 2023 and started a company called Amplify Coaching and Consulting soon thereafter. If you or someone you know could benefit from the time and space to work with someone who can help them evolve into the person they want to be, please reach out. You can email me at amiller333 at yahoo.com, see testimonials of my coaching impact on my personal LinkedIn page, and follow my LinkedIn business page for insights and inspiration on leadership development, career growth, and much more. Today, I'm very excited to welcome my next guest on the show, Dr. Katie Lever. Dr. Lever is a former Division I athlete and superb editor and freelance sports writer whose work has appeared in Global Sport Matters, Sportico, Extra Points, Forbes, and many other outlets. She is also the award-winning author of Surviving the Second Tier, a dystopian novel about the dark side of the college sports industry. She uses the Twitter handle and Instagram handle at Lever that's L-E-V-E-R-F-E-V-E-R, I'm glad you're here to listen to Katie draw on her experience as a college athlete and as a college sports researcher. And I hope you enjoy the show. Katie, how are you?
1: I'm good. How about you?
0: I'm doing really good. How are things on your end?
1: Less stressful than usual, which is okay, not- that's good. Because I, I have friends who are in grad school right now, and I'm like, this is the first time I've never had a finals week in December. So it's different, but it's very good.
0: And so did you finish your PhD recently then? Or- yeah, I
1: graduated in May. So it, it's super fresh still.
0: Congratulations. Thank you. How are you doing in the wake of the PhD? Because that's get piled high and deeper for as long as we all do. And then the aftermath can be a little dicey, I think, right?
1: Yeah, honestly, it, it's an adjustment. I, I knew it would be different just because I've I've literally went like K through PhD and just didn't take any breaks. But I wasn't expecting like the identity crisis to hit so hard. So that was something that I had to really work through this summer. But now I've got an editorial job with Macmillan Learning that I'm really yes. enjoying. And then I can still do my sports writing on the side, which is really nice. And then work-life balance is the best that it's ever been for me too, which is also a huge, huge plus.
0: Oh, I love to hear that. I really do. And, and you are incredibly prolific. I've been reading your articles and you're writing for Sportico and Awful Announcing and Fan Site and all these places. I've been enjoying it. And that was how I found you, right? I was reading some of your articles and uh, I'm glad that we could make this work and I could get to know you a little bit and learn more about your background in sports and your perspective on things. So I'll just dive right in. I always start by asking how my guests get involved in sports. What was your first experience?
1: Yeah, I, I was a college athlete and both my parents were also college athletes. And so sports have always been a part of our household and just a big part of our lives as a family. My mom... Went to the same college I did. She ran track and cross country at Western Kentucky University, which was also my sport. My dad shot rifle at the Citadel. So my my folks were both military too growing up. My mom was the main breadwinner and my dad stayed home. And he was just very intentional on making sure that we always had women's sports on television, which is difficult now even with streaming but back in the 90s and early 2000s yes. even harder to find and my dad just making sure that i always had athletes who looked like me on television was just a big it was just a huge influence for me growing up because i i saw women doing really cool things and from the time that i was a kid i was like i want to go d1 that was always my big goal was to, to go d1 in, in any sport and i, I played like soccer and basketball, softball, track. Like I, I did a ton of different sports growing up and I just landed in track because I took off my junior year of high school and, and specialized a bit late, but it, it worked out for me. And, and my college career, um, lots and lots of highs and lows throughout that. And that kind of led me to start studying college sports policy in my master's program because I experienced the shortcomings of the NCAA as an athlete and how athletes are really protected from injuries and abusive coaching and just burnout and bad work-life balance and the mental health issues that college athletes go through. And so that motivated me to open up an NCAA policy book for the first time in my life for an assignment in my master's program. And that was how my research focus
0: really took shape then. I see. Okay, but let me go back because I want to talk all about that, but I have to go back uh, briefly uh, first, who did you watch on TV? Who were these athletes you were watching on TV when you were a kid?
1: It was really Tennessee women's basketball was oh. uh, Pat Summit was a huge influence for me growing up. So I was I grew up watching her coaching like Candace Parker was a big deal. And even like further back into the nineties, watching like Rebecca Lobo play for sure. UConn and just like that big rivalry taking off too. And and I read all of Pat Summit's books and just like her background and, and what she came from was just very inspiring for me growing up. And I also really loved watching the Women's College World Series because Uh I was a softball player as well. And I was really focused on like the broadcasters too, because I wanted to be an ESPN anchor for the longest time. So like watching Jessica Mendoza and like Holly Rowe. And now I'm really enjoying watching Courtney Lyle, Carolyn Peck on the in the broadcaster side and Women's basketball really has some phenomenal announcers too. So I grew up watching the mix of the athletes and the announcers and the coaches as well.
0: I love that you brought that up because I have to ask about one of the places that you write Awful Announcing. How did the name of that organization come about? I don't know the backstory. Do you?
1: Yeah. So my understanding, and I wish Matt Yoder could be here because he'll tell the story better than me, but Matt Yoder is one of the head editors for Awful Announcing. And one of the writers approached me. This was like when I was finishing up my PhD because I wrote an article about college game day signs and how they perpetuate demonic masculinity in sports. And and they wanted me to write an article about that. And that led to me learning more about the outlet and and writing for them pretty consistently now. But Matt explained it as like the website started out as just a group of writers who they would point out like when an announcer got something wrong or would say something kind of color or iffy. And during COVID, when people were really craving sports content, the website took off exponentially because people you know, were reading more and were home more. And so now the website has expanded it to do just more broad coverage of sports media in general, which was a little bit challenging for me as a writer because I I was so used to writing about college sports specifically and like the critical issues in college sports and and now having to look for a sports media angle for all of my pieces has really, it's helped me a lot as a writer and I've really enjoyed writing for them.
0: That's really interesting because they that's how fans are engaged is through the media for the most part. And so that's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that. And so Pat Summit, I have to ask though, you said you went to Western Kentucky. Was there any problem there? Are you from Kentucky or you're from Tennessee?
1: Yeah, I well, I have family in Tennessee. So we're we're a little bit of both. I, I grew up all over the place because we were moving all the time, but my my family's still in Kentucky. So that's where I call home.
0: But this didn't get in the way of rooting for Tennessee when Pat Summit was the coach.
1: No, uh, honestly, it was cool because I I lived about 45 minutes away from Bowling Green, Kentucky, which is where Western Kentucky, there's also Bowling Green, Ohio, but that's a different university. But I lived about 45 minutes away. And so like my mom, we kind of joked, we were like, you were just like conditioning me to go to your alma mater because she would always take me to like WKU football games. And we would go to a lot of women's basketball games too, because that was another sport I played growing up. So I'm a weird fan in that I have my teams that I like, but I'm so much more interested just in like the narratives of a champion Mm -hmm. and like the stories of the athletes and just like the structures of the NCAA and professional sports system. So I've I recently committed myself to being a Texas fan, just because the energy around UT is super fun right now, and the fans honestly are very consistent. There aren't a lot of bandwagon UT fans, even when football wasn't doing super well. The the fans that are in the stands now are the fans that were there years ago, and I sure. got kind of wrapped up in like the the construction of the Moody Center, which was my college that the Moody College paid for, and it's like the grad students were getting paid twenty. K a year as they were dedicating millions to the center, and then mm-hmm. the, tech, uh, the guys of Texas controversy, like all the recruiting money spent on Arch Manning. I, I was a bit cynical about the athletic department as a graduate student, but I, I love the sports program so much, and it's just it's a really exciting place to be a college sports fan in general because we have like volleyball going to the Elite Eight this weekend. Our women's basketball team just beat UConn for the first time. We've obviously got football going into the the college football That's playoffs. Right. It's people might be like, oh, you just like it because football's good. It's no, I'm on board now because the, the fans have really impressed me and, and the athletes are just absolutely incredible. And I've taught a lot of them too and they're just great people.
0: Yeah, because you did your PhD there, I think. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah just finished my PhD there.
0: Yeah, so you, you can't be called a bandwagon fan if you do your PhD there. If you right. give your blood, sweat and tears to the uh, academic programs and uh, for $20,000 a year that no one can call you a bandwagon fan for that. And what's it been like living in Texas? Uh, are you still in Texas now?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm still in Austin. My my job is remote, so I can go anywhere I want. But I, I just I love the the city of Austin. There's always stuff to do. Um, the, the sports scene is really cool with with UT and we have our soccer team. I just found out we have a professional fast pitched uh, softball team that I think is super cool. I've never been to a game, but I have that on my calendar for next year for sure. Um and there's just bars and music and, and events like Christmas sure. and there's always stuff going on. It it's expensive, which is not fun, but it, But I want to stay here as long as I can.
0: Good for you. And I have to ask, you mentioned the the discrepancy between what UT grad students are paid and what is spent on the sports programs down there. And and you are, of course, a sports researcher as well as an athlete. How do you reconcile those things? I'm always curious how people uh, reconcile those two things.
1: That was a challenge for me throughout my research career because um, I was a rhetorician as well. And I was a very critical rhetorician. Um, and so something that I had to learn was to, to hold space for who I am as a critic and who I am as a fan and to be able to separate those things. Um, and part of it for me is that I, I just have a deep love for college athletes. Like I've I've been one, I'm in a, uh, athlete advocacy groups and so much of my writing is focused on increasing gender parity in college sports and the rights of college athletes, which like there's so much that, that you could talk about when it Absolutely. comes. Absolutely different legal developments and NIL and the transfer portal. And so I think my my love for college outlet my love for college athletes and and my concern for their rights and their well being is always going to outweigh the the criticism that I have for the systems that oversee them. And, and so for me, that helps me to to separate the criticism aspect of myself from the fanhood aspect of myself and to be able to hold both of those parts of myself simultaneously, but separate them when I need to just enjoy
0: the game too. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. You know what? It, it reminds me of uh, something I read a while ago and uh, forget to attribute it to, so I apologize to whoever it is, but there was a, an article I read maybe in The Athletic about the notion of a lobotomized sports fan. Have you mm-hmm. heard of this concept? No, I'm curious. It's it sounds quite different to what you're describing, but the idea that we have to give ourselves a bit of a lobotomy to watch some of the sports that we love and put up with all the things that they do when owners shake down towns for money for stadiums and there's no long term health care for athletes in very <clears throat> violent sports. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. I just wanted to ask because it came up, but I'm really interested to learn more about the research you've done. I know you did your master's thesis about athlete eating disorders, is that right?
1: Yes, that's correct. That was, and honestly, it's funny as an academic. I you'd think that I would like have memorized all my papers. That was so long ago. I, the only thing I remember about that one is that there were no significant findings, and I developed a, a scale for that could measure athletes' perceptions of control and their susceptibility to eating disorders. But I never really did anything with that, and I wish I would have. But that that was also something that was personal for me and in a sport that really glorified athletes being super thin and and my research has always been really personal to me too and i think that helped that that helped the process a lot for me
0: yeah yeah i bring it up because i've been really interested in the topic myself i've had some students over the years who've done research on it and one of them was um, looking into the concept of orthorexia right mm-hmm. and the idea of only eating clean foods and of course athletes are susceptible to that in our power and performance based system that we have, right? Our culture is so much about, are you, are you doing everything you can to be the best possible athlete you can be and food is part of that. Yeah. That's when I saw that, I thought I'd ask you about that. And then you move on and you do your PhD in rhetoric, I think with professor Butterworth, right? And and I'm curious, you, I, I was reading your dissertation and I was, it's fascinating by the way, it's really well done. And I think it's really fascinating how you use this concept of unobtrusive control. And are arguing that the NCAA has excessive control over athletes. So I'm curious if you could tell the listeners a little bit more about that argument.
1: Yeah. So my dissertation, what was, again, based on personal experiences, because something that really struck me when, and and I I write about this, like in the very opening of my dissertation, because I think it's important to, to provide that context, but I was a fifth year senior and I remember one time it, it was like the a couple of days before our home meet, we had one meet at home every year and it was it was fun because like families would come out and, and it was just like a nice Saturday, very casual kind of uh, competition. But I remember my the distance coach came out to me and asked me uh, a few days prior, what events would you like to run for the home meet? And I told him, I, I really just want to run the 3K that's on a Friday night. Like I have a lot of homework and stuff I need to get done over the weekend and, and it wasn't a super competitive meet. I hated the mile. I hated the 800. I was like, please don't make me run the sprint events because, like, for a true distance runner, that's what those feel like. And then a couple of days later, after practice, we were sitting on the bleachers, just stretching. And he came up to me and he told me that I would be running the mile. And I remember just being like, okay, coach, like, no big deal. That's great. But then when he left, I, I just I broke down. I was so mm-hmm. frustrated and I felt so dismissed and so unheard by my coaches when they asked me like, hey, what would you like to do? And I told them and they basically just said no. And I was thinking like, I'm, I'm a 22-year-old woman. Like, I why am I crying over this? Like, this it's not a big deal. It's one meet. It's one event. I'll get through it. It'll be fine. And it took years of self-reflection and therapy to understand that it wasn't just that one moment of me feeling upset about lacking agency. It was just numerous decisions that had been made for me over the course of five years where I felt very disempowered as a college athlete. And as I studied college sports policy more and more, I noticed that there were these themes of paternalism that were very much embedded into not only the structure of the NCAA, but NCAA policy and policies that are designed to govern college athletes outside of the NCAA And even in the NCAA's lack of action, it's very reflexive for people to act in the best interests of college athletes without consulting them or considering what they actually want as adults. And so in my dissertation, I broke it down into three different types of paternalism. You have primary paternalism, which is the kind of paternalism you'll find in NCAA policy where the NCAA says amateurs can't earn money because it's going to be bad for them and it's going to corrupt them and harm the integrity of college sports and put them at risk. So that's a very direct paternalistic directive from the NCAA. Secondary paternalism is where that sense of paternalism comes from outside actors. So a lot of the state level name, image, and likeness laws, for example, have elements of paternalism in them that could be argued are designed to protect college athletes or to do something good or beneficial to them, but ultimately vandalize them in their execution. So there are these uh, state level NIL laws that say that, oh, college athletes can earn money from NIL, but it's got to be put into a trust and they can't access it until after they graduate because they have to get their degree. And that's all fine and good if the athletes were okay with that, but the athletes weren't ever asked, hey, is this an appropriate way to treat an adult's finances? Because it's not, if you have an influencer on campus who's not an athlete, none of those rules are going to apply to them. And then the third kind of paternalism is passive paternalism. And this is where paternalism arises, even in the inaction of the NCAA. The big example of that for me was the anti-trans laws that had been passed over the course of Got the last three to five years, where the NCAA actually had really solid guidelines on trans inclusion in 2011, but after Leah Thomas started competing in, I believe that was 2022, the NCAA rescinded those guidelines and handed it over to the governing bodies of individual sports. And so, in withdrawing control, the NCAA actually encouraged paternalism because these governing bodies are allegedly acting in the best interests of these athletes without consulting them or without considering, oh, there might be some athletes who disagree with them. And and it, it's this overwhelming desire to protect college athletes without asking them if they actually need protection. So that those were the the big three categories of paternalism that I found in my analysis of like dozens and dozens of <laughs> NCAA policy books and varying laws from different levels of legislation.
0: Yeah. And I have to imagine that you're one of the few college athletes to ever actually open that book. The <laughs> <of> policies <laughs>
1: Fortunately, but- yeah. Like they just, yeah. at compliance meetings, you just, you sign things. Like you don't really ask questions or read anything. I have to sign this to compete.
0: So I might as well. You're, yeah, you're stuck in that way. And and of course, college athletes don't have um, much leverage. They're not employees. Mm-hmm. And so they don't have much um, leverage at the, uh, there is no bargaining table, right? That's a big question is is whether they'll become unionized at some point, which I think has, there's a lot of really good reasons why they should be able to unionize. and 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 yet I'm, particularly curious to talk a little bit more about, I think it was the second category that you mentioned, because this idea that they're too young to make their own decisions. I I think you're absolutely right about that. I think policies that are out there, the powerful actors that are out there in in the media and corporate America and the NCAA and universities, most of them have that sort of infantilization of young people generally. But I've been persuaded by this idea that by Jeffrey Jensen Arnett, that there's this period of emerging adulthood between 18 and 25, where there's, they're not quite adults, but they're not quite kids. There's just like this tweener category. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious, I don't know if you're familiar with that theory and, and it's fine if you're not, but I just, I'm curious how we, how we ought to consider these athletes, particularly young ones, right? For freshmen and sophomores who are in some cases, starting members of big time football teams or basketball teams. Well, not single-handedly, but making a major contribution to the earnings of the university and the conferences and the coaches and all that. And yeah, they're not even 20 yet, right? They can't even officially buy alcohol. Maybe they get it some other way. But yeah, what do you make of particularly young college athletes and this notion of paternalism?
1: Yeah, I something that I've really enjoyed about teaching at the college level has been just interacting with a different generation on a pretty regular basis. I think there are a lot of stereotypes surrounding Gen Z that I think millennials deal with a lot, too. The idea of, oh, we're entitled and we're lazy and we don't want to work and oh, we make hasty decisions like we're not mature enough to decide things for ourselves. And honestly, in my teaching experience with Gen Z students, it's the exact opposite. All of the students that I've, or at least the vast majority of of the Gen Z students that I've taught. They're very mature. They're very socially aware. They want to do good in the world. They're hardworking. And I think it's important, you know, for people to understand that, like, yeah, they're 18, 19, 20, maybe 22 or 23 if they're a little bit older, but they're they're still adults and they have the rights to make their own decisions. And I think that a, a huge part of that within the landscape of compensation and NIL is not only honoring athlete's agency, e- even the younger athletes, like honoring their sense of agency, but also providing them the educational resources that they need to make informed decisions. Because that's another thing that's really absent from the in- environment of college sports is this idea of true consent and, and true, con- uh, like informed consent. Because like I was saying, in those compliance meetings, like we we would sit in meetings for hours and hours before We were eligible to compete at at the beginning of every academic year, and we were consenting to things that we didn't fully understand because they weren't really explained to us, or or people believed it was too complicated for us to understand. And we didn't really have a lot of power to change the things that we didn't agree with anyway. And I just think, for me, just having more of an idea of like why things are the way that they are, and what is this paper that we're signing off on on a very basic level, I, I think that college athletes are entitled to that information if it's going to help them make informed decisions. And Mm -hmm. I don't think that uh, or recruiting or the transfer portal or or any of the the conversations that we have around athlete rights, I, I don't think any of that is any different. These athletes, they're not stereotypical dumb jocks. Like they're very driven. They're very smart. And even if they weren't high level athletes, they would still have the right to be educated enough about issues that impact them to make informed decisions about those issues. And for me, and this is one of the reasons I started freelancing as well, because I was doing all of this research and I wanted to translate it into tools that could be educational for people because I, I truly believe in the power of educational empowerment. And especially for college athletes who are so used to being told what to do and to have to comply with things, which was the point of my dissertation, mm-hmm. the educational aspect of that is huge. Because once you empower people with education, then they can make the decisions that are right for them. And that's something that I think is really missing from the modern day NCAA. As these issues evolve, the the NCAA is, is very much on defense and trying to protect their image and... I don't see a lot of emphasis on actually educating athletes about these issues and how they can be impacted.
0: Yeah, and there's so much uncertainty now with the NCAA about what's going to happen. I'm sure you saw the news this week of the new NCAA chief proposing to universities a a new way forward. And I am curious to get your thoughts on that. What do you make of uh, Charlie Baker's idea of giving schools, asking schools if they can put aside some money? I think it was thirty thousand dollars per for at least half of the athletes, if I remember. Correctly, do you? Does this change your perspective at all, or would this have changed the way you'd write their dissertation if it this news had come out before you finished? Or
1: I, I would have definitely had to have not had to have acknowledged acknowledged that, which was a challenge of my dissertation because it was like there was new stuff coming out every single week. Uh, yeah, um,
0: I can relate but, to that. Yeah,
1: yeah, but like my so my take on the new proposal, and I haven't read through all of it verbatim yet, but. Um, It it almost sounds like the NCAA is doing with player compensation what they should have done with NIL before the Fair Pay to Play Act came into play. Because the way that I see it, this new proposal from Charlie Baker is it's very conservative. I don't think it's going to solve a lot of structural problems. It's definitely not granting employee status. So it's deflecting from that issue. Mm -hmm. And honestly, if the NCAA would have done something very similar with NIL in, say, 2017 or 2018, where they said, okay, we're going to allow college athlete a- college athletes NIL rights, here are our parameters. And they they could have said there's a cap on how much they could earn. They could have said you have to put it into a trust or it has to be tied to educate. There are all kinds of limits that they could have potentially put on that. And I think they would have gotten a lot less backlash about it. They they would have probably had to have changed their rules to comply with antitrust and things like that. But Mm -hmm. they could have put a lot of barriers around NIL and controlled that narrative. But instead, it it was left up to the states and the NCAA chose to resist and it, it royally backfired on them. And so I think that with player compensation right now, they're trying to get ahead of the game by... Not mandating that universities pay athletes, they're not saying it has to be at least minimum wage because thirty thousand dollars divided by half the athletes in an athletic department that has to be less than minimum wage for for most of these for most of these programs, but I think that they're they're taking a very conservative approach to player compensation to make it appear as if they're on the athlete side and to deflect from the big issue of. Uh, revenue sharing and athlete employment. So I think they're trying to stay on the public side with this in a way that still is very conservative and safe and that ultimately gives them the control of the narrative because they lost that with NIL.
0: Would you argue that this move is less paternalistic than the other things you've seen in your dissertation that you've studied for your dissertation or is it in line with what you've seen?
1: I would say there are definitely elements of paternalism in it just because it's very much still hinged on the idea of athletic amateurism where there's not this unbridled free market like most sports, like professional sports have. So there's that so-called line of demarcation between collegiate and professional athletes at the NCAA is still trying to strike with it because there's no professional athlete that I can think of who would be happy with a cut of $30,000 as a salary and and they're definitely not employees. So it, it still very much hinges on that whole student athlete mentality and the idea that student athletes are amateurs they're not professional athletes, and they're certainly not employees because they're student athletes. I, I'm, I'm a bit cynical about it. Anytime the NCAA comes out with, with a statement or a policy update, I'm like, is this really going to benefit college athletes? And, and this one, it's been called, I think the word that I saw for it was revolutionary from Sports Illustrated. I was thinking it not particularly, it, it's a nudge in the right direction, but it still definitely has those elements of paternalism that I wrote about in my dissertation.
0: And yeah, I'm glad you brought up amateurism, because I know that you argue in your dissertation that the NCAA uses this myth of amateurism to justify the paternalistic policy. So I'm curious if you could unpack that a little bit. I found that argument to be very interesting.
1: Yeah, I love talking about the myth of of amateurism, because it's just, it's so fascinating to me how these, like the spirit of these concepts that aren't even fully accurate, they just have so much endurance. And I think the romanticization of amateurism is such a great example of that because a lot of people believe that amateurism dates back to the ancient Olympics where athletes were competing at the highest level at the time for no payment. They were just doing it for the love of the game because the the Greek word for amateur or the Greek translation or the English translation of the Greek word amateur is lover. So it's the idea that these athletes are playing for the love of the game. And, And there's a lot of It's a very charming, innocent, nostalgic kind of concept. It's like it makes us think about when we were kids and playing tag on the playground or kickball or whatever. And we were just doing it because we loved movement and we loved exercise. And it wasn't a chore. We weren't trying to lose weight. We weren't trying to earn money. It was just something that we were doing because we were having a lot of fun. But the actual origins of amateurism actually date back to 19th century England, where Um, This was a time when sports were becoming more popular and more accessible to all athletes. And the upper class amateurs, as they would uh, uh, later call themselves, had a big problem with this because athletes uh, who were lower class were also in more labor intensive careers like they were in agriculture, they were carpenters. And so they had athleticism built into their livelihood in a way that the upper class elites did not. And so as these athletes were mingling together competitively, the upper class is constantly losing to these lower class athletes because they had an athletic advantage that the upper class did not just because of their lifestyle. And so the upper class designated these two different classes of athletes, the upper class amateurs who were financially comfortable enough to where they didn't have to earn any athletic compensation to survive, and then the professional lower class athletes who did need that. That athletic income to survive financially, and so they just created these two different socially constructed classes of athletes because they were elitist and classes, and they didn't want to intermingle with poor athletes. And it's a concept that you know has been romanticized a lot of uh, from the Olympics as well, because the Olympics operated under an amateur model for a very long time, um, but also within the NCAA, the 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 definition of amateurism has changed a lot over time because, for the longest time, there was a lot of controversy over athletic scholarships and isn't this payment? Are they still amateurs sure. they can accept scholarship money? And the the definition has has evolved over time to allow for scholarships. Uh, for a long time, NIL wasn't allowed, and now it is. And they're still amateurs. And now we're talking about player compensation, but they're still amateurs. So it's a very slippery concept that. Uh, the definition changes constantly. And, and when the definition changes, it doesn't seem to benefit the athletes to have the label of amateur when the requirements for amateurism are, are just so in flux.
0: Not only that, but in, if you look at college athletes and what they're doing, as I did for my book, it's, it's they're professional in everything but name. The way that they operate on a daily basis, the way they treat their bodies, the way they structure their time, manage their time, they are professionals. And, and yet making them employees of the university, obviously then opens up a whole new set of issues. And I think many of those issues, I think there's many good reasons for that, to make them employees. As I mentioned, unionization makes a lot of sense. And yet, as an educator, I think about if they're employees and their main job is to be professional athletes for the university, do then they gets officially separated off from the university and then they have the choice of whether they want to buy tuition with the money they earn or not that would seem to make some sense don't you think I, i'm i think we're still grappling with what needs to be done but that's a that's a, a thought that's come to mind and i think others have, have uh, suggested it as well
1: yeah i honestly i haven't thought of that i think that's an interesting perspective I, i've heard from people are actually like legal experts. I I don't claim to be a legal expert on like labor laws and and antitrust issues and things like that. I've had to learn it for my work, but I've heard about differences in legal definitions between like unions and players associations as well and how that could play out. But I totally agree with you about how college athletes are essentially professionals. It's something that really, it, it strikes me as so odd, you know, how before every NFL, NBA, WNBA draft. It's like those players go into the draft amateurs and they walk out professionals. Like nothing nothing has changed about them. Their their title and just like the social construction behind amateurism and what that means. So I do think in terms of, just in terms of like employee benefits, for example, a lot of people tend to focus on the monetary aspect of that and like player compensation and revenue sharing. And that, That's absolutely an important issue, and it's something that should be considered while we're talking about college athletes and employee rights. But for me, I look at like the medical benefits that come with employee status, wrongful termination protection, paid overtime, even maternity benefits for female athletes and things like that, which like the WNBA's collective bargaining agreement has very profuse protections for pregnant players as well. And so for me, the compensation angle of all of this is very important, but the health and safety, I would argue, is more important. And going back to my dissertation, just the ability for athletes to collectively bargain and to write their CBAs and to say, hey, this is what we would like to have as as athletes, as our resources at our disposal to submit that to the conference or the school or the NCAA or whoever's overseeing all of that and to be able to negotiate back and forth that for one thing, that's a very adult thing to do. Like kids don't do that kind of stuff. And so I think the the precedent of that is very important in, in treating athletes like adults is, is saying, hey, we want to hear what you have to say and we want to hear what you want. And we're going to seriously take that into consideration. I, I just think that attitude shift in and of itself would have Huge implications for the future of college sports and just for how college athletes are treated and and respected by the people who oversee them as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. You mentioned over, oversight. It's, it brings me back to your earlier point about your own experiences and not having power okay. to make your own decisions about what races to be in. And 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 given what you argue in your dissertation about the myth of amateurism justifying these paternalistic policies, I wonder: Do you think the NCAA is the right? organization to oversee these transitions to whatever's next?
1: Historically, I, I would say no, because on on virtually every issue surrounding college athlete rights, the NCAA has been against all of these initiatives the entire time. It was something that <laughs> it really bothered me when I was reading and writing about name, image, and likeness as all of these state-level laws were being passed. And then finally, L-Day came in in 2021, and so many headlines were, were saying things like the NCAA gives college athletes right NILs. I, their, I you know, remember those. And, and I took several issues with that because for one thing, you can't give somebody rights their NILs. That's, no, they had
0: taken them away for a hundred years.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> they were giving right them back. To be able to market yourself in a capitalist society. It's like you can't give somebody that. And then another thing, too, was that it was this idea that the NCAA was a willing participant in all of this when the NCAA has been against athlete compensation in any form since the 1950s when Walter Byers was the executive director. And and he coined the term student-athlete to deflect from legal issues around player compensation and to deny college athletes workplace rights because they were student-athletes. They weren't employee-athletes. So that was the... Yeah, it, that that was like they the big argument up. around the term student athlete was that like they're students, they're not employees, so we can't pay them. We, we don't give them benefits. And it was mandatorily included in all NCAA policy books and press releases and, and just communications in general. And that stayed very consistent over time. So the NCAA historically has not been on the side of college athletes. And and in fact, they've been impeding the rights of of college athletes for a long time. I think the NCAA has good bones in terms of running championships and, and and things like that. I think that there are good aspects of the NCAA and that they can continue to run college sports structurally, but I don't think that they they should be the ones overseeing the rights of college athletes. I, I honestly, I don't think they have really the authority to do that. And I think that authority has been very much called into question over the past several years and, and decades.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah, I know you've been involved in the Drake group as well, and I think the approach Donna and the team over there are taking makes a lot of sense to me because I agree with you. I think the NCAA has proven time and time again that they're not the organization of the athletes, they're the organization of the universities who are trying to protect their bottom line. And the status quo, which does, of course, work for many of these universities, not all of them, some of them, as I wrote in my book, some of them buy into this big time system and lose a lot of money. So some of these universities are making mistakes when they want to play in the big time, but but a lot of them are making good money, or at least they are they believe that they're attracting more students by having big time athletics and whatever, whether that's true or not on paper, they, they believe it enough to continue doing it. Yeah, yeah. sorry, go ahead.
1: Oh, no, I just that's something I, I I've learned a lot about just different myths in, in college sports and and the flutie effect is one that's yes. really fascinating to me because logically it makes a lot of sense. it's I, I hear it all the time that like the the athletic departments are are the the front door to a university and and I think honestly, it's if these athletes are contributing so much to increased tuition, shouldn't they get paid for that service? You know, so I think like sure. I think it's just interesting how these arguments have been thrown around for so long under the umbrella of of amateurism when it's all about generating money in some way, shape or form. Yeah. And
0: I think I go back to Mary Douglas, a famous anthropologist who said, a myth is a story we tell ourselves that needs no proof. (laughs) And I just think these universities, the administration, just that's that's enough for them. Just they don't care if it's true or not, if it's factually accurate, because it keeps the engine of the train running. And that's football. In some cases, basketball. And they're getting the free tickets to the games and everything's hunky-dory. And maybe it leads to some more donations by the wealthy donors. Yeah, I'm I'm really fascinated by your work and particularly how this paternalism seems to dovetail quite a bit with this other uh, work that you've done on hegemonic masculinity. And so I wonder if we could talk about the article you wrote about College Game Day. What made you think about that being the right um, case study to study hegemonic masculinity?
1: Yeah, I actually, I, I was taking a class on Bergian theory, and I like telling this story because it's just such a good example of if your first draft is terrible, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, you can always go up from a bad first draft. But I I wanted to, to to bring college game day signs to a class. Like it was an informal goal that I set for myself because I love college game day. It's one of my favorite things to do on Saturdays to get up early and just watch college game day and, and keep track of the signs. And when game the day signs. Comes,
0: you, you love it for the signs.
1: The signs are like, I love wordplay and I love no, traps. Yeah.
0: yeah, I hear you. No, I get it.
1: I've always been obsessed with college game day signs. And, you know, when game day came, has come to Austin the last couple of times, I've been able to go and make signs. So that's been super fun too about living here.
0: Did you get on TV with any of your signs?
1: I did. I did. Really? I, I had one. This was when we played Alabama the, a couple years ago, but it was because I knew like with Quinn Ewers, there was going to be some talk about the transfer portal. And so I had like this trappy, like, card like piece of cardboard that I ripped off of a box and I wrote, My good sign is in the transfer portal. And I made it on ESPN. So I was super. (laughs) That's good. My friend sent me the picture and I was like, Mission accomplished. Well Um, done. But so for the game day piece, I brought a bunch of college game day screenshots to class. We had very informal presentations where we had to use a rhetorical artifact to discuss a Berkian theory. And I completely misapplied it. I completely misapplied it in the final paper. I still, I got like a decent grade, but it was, I, I like submitted it to conferences and got rejected. And so I sent it to, to my advisor, Mike, who is a phenomenal advisor. And he was like, this has some good bones, but we need to completely redo the framework because like you, you did misapply this theory. And I was like, okay, that, that's fine. And so he wanted to take a more critical angle on it. And I was like, game on, I'm always down for that. And so we started talking more and more about just what was the common theme among all of these signs. And what I was conceptualizing as, as trash talk could, in an academic sense, be conceptualized as nods to hegemonic masculinity. So hegemonic masculinity is the culturally idealized form of the masculine character in more colloquial terms. That basically means hegemonic masculinity sets the standards for what it means to be a man in a given society. And so something that I noticed about college game day science is because they were contingent on, on trash talk they use hegemonic masculinity to assert the sign holders team's dominance over the other team. Um, And it was a very consistent, a very consistent observation But the title of the academic paper is Dabo wears male rompers examining expressions of hegemonic masculinity in college game day sign. Because one of the key features of of hegemonic masculinity is an avoidance of femininity. And a key theme among these college game day signs that I noticed was the feminizing of these hyper-masculine coaches as a way to mock them. So like right. the Dabo Sweeney example, there there was, that was one of the signs that I analyzed, Dabo Sweeney wears male rompers. And it was a picture of a male model in a romper with Dabo Sweeney's head on it. And then another example of that uh, dynamic in, in particular was one of Jim Harbaugh with a, a Snapchat flower crown on his head. And, and the caption was Harbaugh wear, or, uses Snapchat filters. And then there was one like yeah. Trevor Lawrence drinks pumpkin spice lattes. That was a very consistent theme. If something could be coded as feminine, it was used to mock these masculine coaches. And, and th- there were some other examples, too. Hegemonic masculinity is very contingent on force, dominance, power, and control. And very frequently what these signs would do is they would emphasize the, te- the other team's lack of those things. There, There was a sign about Oregon, for example, that said like a thousand uniform combinations and zero national titles with the Oregon O as the zero. And so it was like this expression of, oh, you don't have this element of hegemonic masculinity that we have. So we are therefore superior was the underlying context of all of that. And it was one of those things that like, I really had to challenge myself on that because I was like, that's funny. Like I'm not even going sure. to. Like, some of them I, I thought were were very funny and the photoshop was really well done and and things like that but even if it's something that is it, seen as lighthearted and humorous and safe for tv it doesn't mean that it's void of these harmful constructs nonetheless and so that right. that's another kind of tension i've had to work out in my research is mm. like this is a this is a field that is very contingent on hegemonic masculinity and those sorts of toxic ex- expressions and and it's not that masculinity in and of itself is a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to be a powerful person. It's not a bad thing to not be feminine in and of itself. But when those values are exemplified to the detriment of other people, that's when it becomes hegemonic and that's when it becomes um, harmful. And and college game day is a microcosm of how that plays out in broader society.
0: Yeah. And it's really interesting too, because the game day set is the medium through which the culture is reflecting or refracting these ideals. And because, of course, this, the game day, the ESPN people, they don't pick or approve which signs get put through, but people who show up earlier or whatever get their signs on TV. And, and so you're seeing that that culture come through that medium. So that's quite interesting. And I think I also wonder, too, when I'm listening to you explain it, I think about how it might be the fact that these are humorous that makes them almost more insidious in a way. What do you think? Am I right about that?
1: Yeah, it, it's almost like the, like in the Sandlot, like the you play ball like a girl kind of right. thing. Like it's such an iconic line and it's something that, you know, didn't age well, but was very funny at the time. But it's like the the humorous aspect of it doesn't make it any less horrible. And, and the signs that I analyzed actually they they were on College Game Days Instagram. So they were screened. Oh, they
0: were I see. Okay. Yeah, so that's... Yeah, and I,
1: I should have mentioned that earlier, but but they they were screened by ESTN and and as a reflection of that culture. And not only that, but like the layout of the show too. I I pointed out and and this was before Just Sims was an analyst, but like Maria Taylor, for example, when she was on College Game Day, she never sat at the table with the guys. She was always right. on, on her little her side, and she did a great job, but she was always separate from the guys on her side platform. The guest pickers are, are overwhelmingly male, and they get to sit at the big table, and that's a division of labor. And heterosexuality is another big part of hegemonic masculinity, because according to those standards, to be masculine, you have to be straight. And something that I noticed about the years of the, the shows that I analyzed as well was that the guest pickers the vast majority of female guest pickers were accompanied by their husbands so it's like you very rarely had women who were just there on their own it was that they had to be there with their husbands and whether or not that was intentional it just like we were saying it still really reifies those harmful structures and it's not that there's anything wrong with being straight or anything like that it's just if that's the one thing that you see over and over again in the sports industry it, it just it really makes you question who is really welcome here and who is... Right,
0: Right, there is a question of belonging. And, uh, and I, so I have to ask then because if this is one of the, this must be the most popular college football show on TV, right? And um, it's obviously shaping these societal norms of masculinity. It may not be creating them necessarily, but it's certainly not challenging them, right? And so do you see things, how do you see things moving forward? Do you see this perpetually reproducing itself because this particular program is so popular and and people will continue to watch it over time. It would seem that college football just continues to grow. So why not this big time show that covers it?
1: Yeah, I think college football, I I don't want to say it's separate from the rest of the college sports industry, but it is one of those areas that is very hyper-masculine just because there's not really a woman's equivalent to tackle football. I'm seeing definite shifts in the way that women's sports are covered, which is really encouraging. I think that I I read somewhere that like coverage of women's sports has tripled over the last couple of years, which is huge because the percentage of women's sports coverage has not changed from the 1980s to 2020. And all of a sudden it's tripled. It's still around 15%, so it's very low, but the industry itself is, is projected to exceed numerous projections for um, revenue and viewership and overall popularity. And so for the networks to increase attention to women's sports, I think is, is a very good thing and, and, and a, a big sign of progress as well. Um, I've also noticed more diversity in women's sports like volleyball and softball. There are really wonderful commentators on the women's side as well who are really, they've been there, they, they've either been there for 20 years or they're really making a name for themselves. And so I'm seeing shifts that are encouraging. I definitely think that more work needs to be done, but it's it's really an exciting time to be a a fan of women's sports in particular because of how the leagues and the athletes and just the overall media coverage is taking off.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. And I I appreciate that. I share those opinions with you. And we're coming up on time here and I do have a a call coming up. So I got to ask the question, I ask all my guests, Katie, you've been an elite athlete I imagine you still are an elite athlete. I shouldn't say use the past tense. You've been an elite athlete. You have a PhD studying sports. And what is the power of sports to you? Ooh,
1: that is a phenomenal question. I think the power of sports is that it it truly has the capacity to change and to save lives. And, And I don't say that lightly because, and this is one of the reasons I'm so passionate about women's sports and just participation for girls as well in Title IX because it's cliche to say it, but sports teach you many values that are going to benefit you throughout your life. You can meet people who will be a huge part of your life in the future. Sometimes sports will knock you down and take you out. And that has a lot of potential to teach you really good lessons. And so I think the power of sports is that sports not only change and shape and model society, but they also have the capacity to really influence people at the individual level. They can, sports can create communities, sports can create passion, sports lead to lifelong careers and and, and empowerment, particularly for female athletes. So I think the power of sports is that they're just very life-giving in ways that few cultural institutions truly are.
0: I love that. Very well put. Thank you so much, Katie. It's been a pleasure to get to know you a little bit and learn about your experiences and your research. And I really appreciate you making time for me and the show.
1: Thank you, Aaron. I appreciate it. This is fun.
0: I hope to talk to you again soon.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay. Take good care.
1: You too. Bye. (laughs)
0: that'll do it for today's show. Thank you so much for listening and really appreciate your support and sharing and liking this show on Apple podcasts. And please tell a friend.